Well, good evening, brethren. We're up to Judges chapter 3. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this is your first time joining us, uh, welcome. We, uh, we look forward to you catching up. And all of these studies are in the archives, so please uh, check out our archives at uh, on YouTube, CGI Digital Network. Just search for CGI Digital Network. But the best way is just to download our app on the Kindle Store, the uh, Google Store, as well as the uh, Apple Store, the App Store. Uh, just look for the CGI Digital Network app, and all of our studies are there in the archive. We're up to Judges chapter 3. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and uh, we can get straight into tonight's study. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before starting to give you thanks and praise you, to thank you, Father, for this uh, feast of weeks, this festival of weeks as we count towards Pentecost. We just praise you, Father, for the, the mighty lessons that we learn as we rehearse these holy days and come to understand your plan much more closely. We also thank you, Father, that we can study your word line by line and again come to understand your plan uh, much more minutely, much more carefully, uh, and that can lead to a greater conviction, Father, as we face such time of uncertainty, we can stand on the solid rock, which is Christ. We praise you, Lord. We thank you and we pray in his name. Amen. So, uh, brethren, we are counting towards the Feast of Pentecost and celebrating the Feast of Weeks. I hope that you were able to join us on Sabbath when we had Pastor George Ramakan speaking from the UK and just gave an amazing and very profound message on the Feast of Weeks. And again, if you missed that, please uh, check out our archives for the Sabbath service. So, we are now up to Judges chapter 3. And what I want to do as we, as we head into Judges chapter 3 is just go back a little bit uh, to pick up the tail end of chapter 2, uh, just so that we have the context as we work into Judges chapter 3. So let's, let's do that. Uh, we'll go ahead and begin in uh, just the tail end of Judges 2. And let me just quickly get back up to the top here. Uh, we'll pick it up from verse 18. And let me just make sure that we can see that. Maybe just a little bit more. There we go. So uh, Judges 2 and verse 18. And when the Lord raised, up, raised them up judges, and these judges are not like, you know, the way we would think of a judge sitting in a courtroom and passing sentence. Really a better word would be saviors. That these are mini saviors. These are people that uh, they have unique characteristics that God is able to leverage their, their natural ability, combine it with a supernatural ability in order to save Israel from her trouble. So think of uh, judges as many saviors. And when the Lord raised them up, judges or many saviors, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. That was the purpose of the judge, was to throw off the shackles of oppression from Israel's enemies. And so he would raise up this judge and he would be with them all the days uh, of that judge. And he says, delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. So God is being faithful to his covenant. We covered this last week. He's being faithful to his covenant. They're the ones who are being unfaithful. Because they are unfaithful to the covenant, that doesn't break the covenant. It just means that instead of exercising these terms and conditions, that he now, God has to pivot 
and exercise these instead. That if you do these things, here's how I'll bless you. But if you do these things, here's how I'll curse you. So, okay, you're going to do the things for curses. God being faithful to his word, he's spoken it, he's faithful to it. He then does the cursings. But he is in covenant love with Israel. He loves Israel. Israel is his chosen bride. He loves her. And even though he is punishing her, it repents him. When he hears her crying out, then he, he has mercy upon her and he raises up a judge to relieve her of the suffering. He doesn't throw her away. He, he stays with her. That oppressed and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead. So the judge has this ability to keep the oppression away. But then when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves, uh-oh, more. So this is, this is sort of the, the, um, the, the trailer. This is a movie we're watching. Uh, viewer discretion is advised. Uh, but this is the trailer. And it just basically, so we get a sense of what the movie's going to be like, that when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Wow. You know, when we read, we're like chapter two of the book of Judges. So we've, we've come out of um, the, the Torah. And then we read Joshua and we read Judges. We're in chapter two of Judges. Like, I'm done. Like, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. Let's get rid of these people. Let's start over. Like, let's, uh, let's throw these people away and let's go find the Arabs and maybe work with them. Because this, this doesn't make any sense. And that's what the Quran would have us believe, that God has thrown these people away and now he's chosen the Arabs as a special people. But clearly, when we, and the reason is because the, the people are just so, so rebellious. But what we're seeing here is, yeah, the people are rebellious. That is their nature. They are stubborn and rebellious and they will not cease from their own doings. But God will not cease from the promise of his covenant. So all of this wickedness notwithstanding, God's covenant stands. That's what we see here. So he says here, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because that this people has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, they've transgressed the covenant, which I commanded their fathers and have not hearkened unto my voice. Then what? I'll throw them away. I will also, I, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Okay, so these people are so rebellious that when God saves them, they just return to their rebellion. They're wicked people. Because they break and they transgress the covenant, does God throw them away? No, he doesn't. What does he do? He doesn't drive out the nations. That was the agreement. You're going to go into the land and I will go before you. And even though you're the smallest of nations, don't worry about that. Look what I did in bringing you out of Egypt. So don't just look back to what I did, the, mir the miracle of coming out of Egypt. That's how you were established as a nation. Look how powerful Pharaoh was. I brought him down, no problem. Now go into the land. And even though these people are mightier than you and you're the smallest of nations, this is not a problem. I'm going to go before you and I'm going to take down these nations. But now because you've transgressed the covenant, I'm not going to throw you away. I'm not going to violate the covenant. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to drive the people out of the land. 
you're now going to have to contend. These are chilling words, by the way. That these nations that are mightier than Israel, if God doesn't drive them out of the land, that means slavery, that means starvation, that means rape, that means child molestation, that means um, poverty. It, 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 this is a horrible, verse 21 is chilling for what it means for this nation that was chosen by God. I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. That through them, that is through these Gentile nations, I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it, or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily. Neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. So because of the people's rebellion, really it should have been Joshua. Moses said to Joshua, you know, I can't take the people into the promised land. You're going to take them in. And the expectation was that he'll go in and uh, they'll just clear out the land. And under Joshua's reign, uh, Joshua's leadership, that the land would then be established as holy land and these people would be established as a holy people. But the people were rebellious. The people were stubborn. The people were not wholehearted. And so God says, you know what? I'm not going to drive out these nations. So now that's the context for Joshua 3. And then still in these first few verses of chapter 3, we're still into the introductory material before we actually get into the careers and the lives and the conquests of the judges. So Judges 3 and verse 1. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left. So which nations did the Lord leave? And, and why did he leave them? So he's going to tell us the nations and why they were left. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them. Even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, Canaan. So these are people, these are the next generation now, that they didn't know the wars. It's like us today, you know, uh, on Remembrance Day, you know, years ago, go, go back a couple of decades, everybody wore a poppy. It was just such an astonishment of the sacrifice that was made, the, the, the price that was paid, for us in the Western world to have freedom. Everybody wore a poppy. But then generations go by and these things are not taught and we don't teach history and we don't remind people. And now we have a generation that Remembrance Day comes, not only do they not wear a poppy, it's like, that's racist. You shouldn't wear a poppy. Let's, let's celebrate the, the other side. You know, let, let's give honor to the, the, the Nazis. This is, this is what happens when we don't teach and remind people of the price that was paid. And I really feel sorry for the veterans who fought in World War II. Some of them are still alive. And you see them as selling poppies and people just walk past them, ignore them. This is what happens. So God now is going to take this generation that doesn't know war. And he's going to teach them war. And through this process, they're going to learn how to fight because they have to do that to clear the land. And God is also going to see what's in their heart. Are they really going to stick to the covenant or not? Now, the nations, let's go to Deuteronomy 7, go back to the Torah. So what did Moses write? And the Lord, your God, will put out those nations before you little by little. You may not destroy them at once, 
lest the beasts of the field increase upon you. So God had a plan. You're going to go in, and we're going to just sequentially move these nations out and get rid of them. Because if you get rid of them all at once, you'll be overwhelmed by the wild beasts of the field. So, so these nations were to be removed. Judges 3, verse 2. He says, Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. So God wants them, they, they, their whole idea is for them to go in and conquer these nations. God will go before them and God will make sure that they're victorious if they're faithful. But they have to, it's not just, you know, sit back and let, let, let God do it all. You know, it's like Christians today. Oh, Jesus did everything. I'm saved. I don't have to do any, there's no battle here. I just have to sit back and I, I accept the Lord. I love the Lord. And he did it all for me. The finished work of Christ. Uh, no, <laughs> we have work to do. We have a battle to fight. And God, this is just as it was with these, these uh, ancient Israelites, they had to fight to gain ground. And just as we go through the days of unleavened bread and now this Feast of Weeks as we count towards Pentecost, we have to fight. There's a spiritual fight, a resistance to gain ground. So they, they are to learn war. Now he says, namely, here, here are the nations now, namely, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, all of them, and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon. From Mount Baal Hermon unto the entering in of Hamath. So, you know, today these are all Muslim nations. Uh, and it's the same, these are the same nations that hate uh, Israel, both Judah, the people we call Israel today, plus the Israelite nations, same people. Um, but but it's, it's very clear, the, these, these are enemies of, of Israel, and they're left there. And they're left there, verse 4, and they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. In other words, the Torah. So they've got the Torah, and now are they going to follow what's prescribed in the Torah? And are they going to learn war and be courageous and take the land and not compromise? Or are they going to play with the Torah and compromise with the Torah the way Christians do today? And the children of Israel dwelt, this is, this is like astonishing, when we come out of the Torah and then we read now, we're, in, we're just into the early history of Israel and we read here in verse 5, I mean Moses is probably turning in his grave. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and these are, these are filthy people. You look at the land, the Canaan, uh, how they got their start and the filthy deeds of their father. And, and then the sexual immorality in which they were born. And that creates a culture of sexual immorality. There's no standard. Uh, the, say the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites. The, the, these are all, you know, you look at uh, Lot, the Amorites and the Moabites. They're, they're, they're born of incest. So again, they're, they're, their mothers have no sexual standards. And so the cultures that come out of these people are depraved. They're, they're a depraved people with depraved culture. And that's why God just had it with them and said, okay, I'm going to move Israel in and just wipe these people out. They can come up in the resurrection where they'll have a clean, clean shot, but they're too depraved. Now, look at these nations that are listed here and go, let's go back to the Torah. 
Uh, again, we read Deuteronomy 7. Uh, so he says, verse 1, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it, and has cast out, God is going to do this, he will cast out many nations before you. Which nations? The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations. So there were seven nations to be cast out. And now God is saying, I'm going to leave five of them. Five of these very nations that you were supposed to go in and, and you were supposed to drive them out, but God would go before you. They're, they're more mightier, they're mightier nations than you. God would go before you and he would drive out these nations for you, but you were disobedient. So now God is leaving five of these nations that should have been driven out, that are filthy nations, that, that are deplorable, that are despicable, that are full of debauchery. They're staying in place. And, and they're greater and mightier than you. So God, God knows that these are mightier nations. But remember, you came out of Egypt. And remember what God did to Pharaoh. Now go forward and take down these nations. But they didn't do it. And we saw as we uh, read the opening of Judges that they just, they, they were not successful. They dwelt with these people. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you. So we're still in the door, the Torah. This is the instruction that Moses wrote. That when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you. God is going to do it. And shall smite them. They're mightier than you. God will do it. And shall smite them. And utterly destroy them. There's not to be a... Tr this, these people are too uh, despicable to be left in the mix. God wants to establish a holy nation so that the world has a chance. That the world can learn the ways of Jehovah and not the ways of Satan. But if we're going to mix the people of Satan with the people of God, then there's no chance. There's going to be just corruption uh, throughout, the, throughout the land. So he'll deliver them before you. You shall smite them and utterly destroy them. That's your job. It's like unleavened bread. We have to utterly remove sin from our lives. That's our job. We don't just sit back and say, yeah, Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. Not, nothing to do here. Listen to this. You shall make no covenant with them. Under no circumstances do you get into any agreements with them. Make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. You know, some people think they're more righteous than God. I think, you know, we're going to go into the land here, but, um, you know, they, they deserve a chance. And, you know, we have to give them a space. And, you know, they're just like us and we're all the same. And, you know, after all, no culture is better than another culture. And, and all, all, all people are the same. Uh, no, God says, don't make any agreement with them and show them no mercy. Their culture is inferior. Let me say it again. God says, their culture is inferior. And, and we cannot have it in the Holy Land. Because the Holy Land is to be a beacon to the rest of the world. So that people can come out of their darkness. So don't make uh, any covenant with them. Don't show them any mercy. Neither shall you make marriages with them. <laughs> don't do this. No agreements, no marriages. Your daughter you shall not give unto his son. Nor his daughter shall you take unto your son. There'll be no marriages with these people. So that's the context. That's the instruction from Moses. Let's see how we do. Judges 3 and verse 6. And they took their daughters to be their wives. What's wrong with God's people? Why do we read 
the Word of God, and then we have a better idea. Why do we read the plain text, and then we have our own ideas, and our ideas are superior? Because, you know, God is kind of backwards. We're very sophisticated. We're more merciful. We have better ideas. So they're told, do not marry these people. They go into the land, and what do they do? They marry the people. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their sons, to their sons. They gave their daughters to be their, to, to, to their sons, to be their sons. <laughs> That's what they're doing today. Uh, they gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. Can you imagine this? The virgins of Israel being given to the pagans to bow down and worship the pagan gods and to be involved in the debauchery of the pagan gods. Can you imagine how furious, how hot with anger God is or God was with these people? And the children of Israel, what did the children of Israel do? The children of Israel did evil. But listen, it's not that they did evil. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, another way of writing this I could write this, you know, um, we could write this another way, and we believe it was Samuel who wrote this. The children of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. The children of Israel felt special, and they felt very righteous, and they felt like they were doing very good things. That's what we could have written. But we're not writing it from the perspective of the children of Israel. We don't really care what the children of Israel thought. What we want to know is what did God think? So while the children of Israel think they're doing right, what's written here in Judges is that they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So it begs the question, we as Christians, is it possible? I'm just asking the question based on the text. Is it possible for us to be making decisions? Is it possible for us to be doing things that violate the text? It violates the text. But we have our own ideas. And we think we're doing right. But God is looking and saying, this is evil. This is leaven. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And forgot the Lord their God and served Baalim and the groves. This is what they were to clear these people out. But they left them in place. And now look, they're mixing, they're being very sophisticated. You know, we're, we, we get along with our neighbors, it's all very good. Why don't you take my daughter, I'll take your daughter, we'll, we'll get along. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. That's a chilling verse. That, you know, we wouldn't want it to be said, therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against the church. But if we are no different than our spiritual forefathers, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? You know, the scripture, there's a scripture that says, you know, woe unto you who desire the day of the Lord. It's a day of darkness. So we have to take this seriously and have this sort of Passover mentality of making sure we're putting the blood on the doorposts and not doing it in vain so that the wrath of God can pass over. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, king, listen to this, he's the king of Mesopotamia. So, or Mesopotamia. Now, a couple of things here. This name, Kushan Rishathaim, 
Uh, it means the king of double wicked, or the, the Cushite of double wickedness. So, so clearly this was a, a Hebrew uh, name that they gave him. It's not his real name, but it's their name of him, how much they suffered of him. He's the, the, the Cushite, uh, probably Ethiopian, of double wickedness. And notice he's the king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served him eight years. So <clears throat> he's a king. So God is Israel's king. But they didn't want to serve God. So they threw off God. They made alliances with the people that they were supposed to destroy and remove. And now they have a new king. They didn't want God as their king. Now they have a new king. And it's the king of double wickedness. And he's the king of Mesopotamia. Now, Mesopotamia is the Fertile Crescent. So this is a very wealthy area. This is, you know, to be the king of this area in the ancient Near East, this is a very, very powerful man. So they have now fallen under, under slavery to this very powerful king because they rejected God as their king. And he's the king of double wickedness. He's the eight years. It would be like having a president, if you were American, be like having a two-term president who's a, a king of double wickedness. You know, these people here are all taken over now by Islam, which is an extremely wicked ideology. It's responsible for slaughtering tens of millions, well, close to hundreds of millions of human beings with no regard, no, no value of human life. That's wickedness. But it's like, hey, he's not just a Muslim. He's a Marxist. Communism. Terrible wickedness, responsible for slaughtering tens of millions of people. So you combine Islam with Marxism, and you're ruling over the people for, for eight years and oppressing them with these ideologies and just no regard for life. That's what happened to Israel. They fell under this leader for eight years. They didn't want to serve God, so they served this uh, Cushite of double wickedness who was a very wealthy king of Mesopotamia for eight years. So you can imagine all what is happening to the Israelite people for eight years and how they're now unable to give God any true honor because of the oppression under these eight years. Now, these Cushites, what do we know about them? Well, their mighty hero is Nimrod. Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter of souls before the Lord. So this oppressive ideology, Nimrod is the star of Cush. So all the Cushites claim Nimrod as their superstar. So this Cushite of double wickedness will have this Nimrodian ideology of oppression and wiping out human life. No value to human life. Now, we're going to see now a judge, the first judge of Israel, rise up. And just to get some context here, we'll go back to Judges chapter 1, verse 12. And Caleb, we understand Caleb's uh, righteousness and his faithfulness to the Lord as one of the two witnesses that were faithful. And Caleb said, He that smites Kerjath Sefer and takes it, so somebody's going to be bold and faithful and courageous, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, to wife. Imagine that. You, the faithfulness of Caleb. Imagine how this woman was raised and the, the moral principles and, and the outlook, the worldview that she would have being the daughter of Caleb. And Caleb being such a mighty leader in Israel that whoever marries her would also be now a person of renown to be able to say that Caleb's daughter is his wife. And Othniel, 
meaning Othniel meaning the force of the Lord, and Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother, so this is now Caleb's uh, nephew, took it, and Caleb gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. So that's some context that we have from chapter 1. Now, just going back to chapter 2 here, verse 19, just to give some context. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves. So spoiler alert. So Othniel is going to be raised up. He's going to deliver Israel from oppression. But here's the spoiler alert. Here's the theme of the story. That it came to pass that when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. And they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So that's the context. So get ready. We're going to see some good news here with Othniel, but spoiler alert, it's all going to go sideways. Judges 3 and verse 10. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Notice that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And that's what we'll see as we go through the Judges. We'll never read, I, I don't believe that I've read it, I don't think I ever saw, that the Spirit of the Lord came into him. So, so the Spirit of the Lord didn't come into him. That these judges, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. In other words, God uses them almost like a tool. And this now begs the question, do judges have to be perfect for God to use them? Do the saviors have to be perfect specimens? Of, do they have to be models of Jesus Christ for God to use them? And I think, you know, we're going to see here, Othniel is superb. He's the, the nephew of Caleb. That's the high watermark. We never hit that high watermark again. After that, it goes downhill. Uh, Israel continues to spiral downward, but God keeps intervening and raising up judges, but the judges are not perfect. And that, that's the, you know, can, you know, today we see people saying, like, God could never use this man. Well, why could he never use him? Because he's flawed. Look at all his flaws. Well, let's look at these saviors. And let's see how, how perfect they are or not, how imperfect they are. But Othniel starts off with a wonderful start. He's the high watermark. But Israel, not so much. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And went out to war. So he's a war. He's the, this, this, this is fighting off the oppression. And some people have the right character that they can fight and fight and fight and fight. And that's just what they do. They're wired for it. And other people are, have more cowardice. And God could never use them in this way. But these men that God raises up and, and a woman, they have this spirit of valor. And they're, they're courageous and they're able to fight. So God can use them. Their flaws notwithstanding. And he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. It's always the Lord that does this. And, and you can, as we go through this, when the Lord is ready, he makes a speedy work of these mighty kings. He just takes them down. It's laughable. There's no contest. But they're mightier than Israel. But as long as Israel is faithful, God will take them down. But if Israel is not faithful, well, then we're going to have to contend with their might. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand, that is the hand of Othniel, the force of the Lord, prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim. I wonder why they have to just put his name in there so often. I have to keep stumbling over it. Um, but this is, this is the, the, the Holy Spirit is upon Othniel to enable him to have this power to overcome the enemies of Israel. And the land had rest 
40 years. And then we're going to hear some very chilling words now. 40 years, Othniel judged Israel. And that, again, is this, um, this courageous spirit, the, the spirit of the warrior. And whenever Israel's enemies are rising up, he's just putting them down and just keeping, keeping Israel safe because his whole heart is for Israel. And he's the nephew of uh, Caleb, and he's married one of the pure virgins of Israel. And when we have a, a virgin of Israel who's brought up with this moral code and this moral compass, that's, a, that, you know, the, the, what is this, the, is it they say, uh, behind every great man, there's a great woman. You know, it's, it's, it's the wife who's there and encouraging and not like Job's wife, for example, oh, curse God and die. You know, sometimes you marry the wrong woman and they're just discouraging you. They don't want you to serve God. But you marry the right woman with the right moral compass and the right moral code. And, and they're encouraging you and they're like, okay, they, and they have wisdom and they can remind you of scriptures. And so clearly Othniel had married one of the pure virgins of Israel and had strong encouragement from her and they were a, a mighty couple. And he just faithfully, faithfully, faithfully fought for Israel to the very end. And then he died. We already got the spoiler alert. So when the judge dies, we know exactly what's going to happen next. So we go on now to verse 12. Oh, no surprise here. Uh, we were expecting this. And the children of Israel did evil again. In whose sight? In their own sight. I'm sure if we were to uh, interview them now, if we could go back in time and get our, the camcorders and get these people together and, and interview them and say, like, what are you doing? I see that you're um, uh, making marriages with the people of the land. They would have all kinds of rationalizations. Oh, yes, we know, but we think that it's better for our children to integrate and to learn and to, you know, it's going to be better for it. They would have, they're not doing evil in their own sight. They're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And we need to be very careful as Christians that, of course, in our own sight and compared to the nations around us, and we think we're doing so well and we're just so wonderful. But when we actually sit down and read the word of God, are we doing it or are we violating it? And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And what happened now? The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. So remember, these nations are mightier than Israel. But God can take care of them. But instead of taking care of these nations, he is strengthening Eglon, the king of Moab. And again, uh, these people are filthy people. These are people that are born of immorality. Their, 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 their uh, matriarch was incestuous. And so she had no sexual standards. And these, these people come out of a, a culture then that has no standards, full of debauchery. But they're powerful people. And God is strengthening. It's like, you know, um, years ago, a few years ago, every week, ISIS was getting stronger. Every week, ISIS was getting more territory. It's like every week you're just listening to the news and it's like, are they going to take over the whole world? And then we see a new administration and it's almost like within a couple of weeks, that's the end of ISIS. So it's like, okay, these people are Mickey Mouse. If they're dealt with head on with a strong hand, but if, if for whatever reason God allows them to gain strength, then they, they, all this political correctness where we can't speak and the enemies are gaining strength because we cannot convey the ideas that will destroy the enemy's ideology. So they're gaining strength. Well, this is the Lord's doing. The Lord is strengthening the enemies of Israel to take down Israel. And so this is what happened anciently. The Lord strengthened Eglon. So Eglon, of course, would give himself credit. So Israel, 
will give themselves credit for being righteous while they're doing evil. And Eglon will give himself credit for being strong while it's actually God that's strengthening him. So it's funny how the human mind perceives itself compared to what's really the real view from heaven. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Why? Because they had done evil in whose sight? And it never says they did evil in their own sight and they're sorry for what they did. The evil that they did was not in their own sight. They were doing right in their own eyes. What the evil they did was in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him, this is uh, the king of Moab, Eglon, gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. So Moab, the children of uh, incest, Ammon, children of incest, and Amalek, uh, real intense enemies of, of Israel. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. So he's a mighty king, and he's now gathering these other nations who hate Israel, and they're going to make a short work of Israel. And went and smote Israel and possessed the city of the palm trees. So this clearly would be some highly desirable city. Excuse me, that clearly belongs to Israel. Israel should have gone in and taken this land. But no, they're going in and they're taking it. So they struck Israel. Now, uh, the Amalekites, just quickly, if we go back to the Torah, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto you, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met you, by the way, and smote the hindmost of you, even all that were feeble behind you when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. So you can imagine, you know, these people are trying to cross, and you've got the, the um, older, the elderly people behind, maybe the small children, they can't quite keep up. This wicked, these wicked people go in, and they show no mercy. No mercy. Again, it's like the ideology of Islam. That's what these people are the descendants of. And it just has no mercy. It just slaughters. These are not human beings. We don't consider them. They're less than human. So we show no, they just slaughter them. And the, the even there's no mercy on the weak and the faint. And he's saying, remember that. They didn't fear God. Remember that. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord has given you for an inheritance to possess it, this is your inheritance, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. So God is saying, don't forget this. And when you actually do go into the land, Make sure you remove Amalek from the land, the complete remembrance of him. They didn't do that. And now Amalek has the upper hand, and he's going to slaughter them. And history just repeats itself. You know, instead of us taking the upper hand when we should, we don't. The enemies prosper. They come and they get the upper hand. And woe unto God's people when the enemy has the upper hand. Back to Judges 3 and verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon the king. God is their king. They didn't want to serve God their king. So now they're serving Eglon, the king of Moab. 18 years. Last one was eight years. Then they had 40 years of the reign of uh, or the, the, rule, the rulership and the judging of Othniel and the protection of Othniel. And now it's 18 years under Eglon. And just remember every day. Every day, when these filthy people who have no moral code, no moral compass, when they have control of you, when they can go into your house and do whatever they want with your family, that's what's going on here for 18 years. Impoverishing you, 
that offerings that you should be taking to the Lord on the high days, you don't have, you, you've got to give it to them. You can't even keep the high days. You've got to keep their pagan days. But when the children of Israel, and that's what they deserve, that's, that's the covenant, that's what they deserve. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. So judges are deliverers, they're saviors. He raised them up a deliverer. And he says here, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And that's kind of funny because Benjamin means son of my right hand. But this Benjamite, this son of the right hand, is actually left-handed. And the Hebrew implication of left-handed is not like today where some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed, some people are ambidextrous. Uh, the intention here is that there seems to be something wrong with his right hand. That his right hand is somehow, uh, it's restricted in some way, so he's forced to work with his left hand. Okay? So he's, he's a left-handed man. So let's remember that. And we see here then, sorry, let me just get this right. The children of Israel, they cried to the Lord, and he raised them up a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, son of the right hand, a man left-handed. And by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. So this would be like a tribute. And, and the king would expect this. You know, if you're a subject nation, you better come with your offerings to the king. And so this man is the one that they sent the offering to the king. Now, let's see about Benjamin. Go back to chapter 1, verse 21. The children of Benjamin, Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. So they were supposed to go in and take Jerusalem. They didn't do it. They didn't drive out the Jebusites, but the Jebusites dwell, in the land, dwell, dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. So Benjamin was not particularly faithful to God, and so they have what they have coming comes to them. But then God has mercy on Israel, and he raises up from Benjamin a savior. And this, this is, begs the question. It really begs, let's, let's think about this. Does a man have to be perfect for God's spirit to be upon him and God to use him to relieve his people of their suffering? Or does God only work through Jesus and only when Jesus comes do we accept man? Or you, know, you can hear the news now. You know, uh, left-hand left man bad. Left-hand man bad. Left-hand man bad. Left-hand man bad. Okay. What if left-hand man is the man that God is raising up because he has a spirit of courage. And, and God knows his characteristics and he's a flawed man. Yeah, left man, man bad. He's flawed. But there are certain characteristics he has, chief of which is courage. And God is such love for his people that he's going to use this man and his unique characteristics, but, but infuse them with some supernatural um, uh, context and abilities so that he can save his people. Let's read on. Verse 16. But Ehud made him a dagger. So he's, he's going to take this gift to this man that is oppressing Israel for 18 years. And no doubt Ehud is looking and seeing what the man is doing to Israel. How he's humiliating them. 
how he's taking their wives and their daughters and just doing whatever he wants with them, how he's taking their wealth. And, and this is going on and on and on. And finally, there's somebody who's willing to do something about it. Everyone else is like, oh, well, I guess this is our lot. Oh, well. And Ehud is like, no, this, we can't do this. We have to do something about this. So he says here, But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. So this man is a very thoughtful man. He's, he's thinking this through. He, he's a strategist. Not very many people can think long term. But this man is a strategist. This, this man is thinking things through and thinking about how am I going to do this? And he's probably not talking to very many people. There's not, probably not very many people around him that he can trust. If he were to bring a fellow Israelite into his plan, they would probably be so terrified that they would squeal. They would run to King Eglon and say, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna. So he had to just keep this secret. So he made this dagger and it had two edges. So he's really thinking this through what he needs. And it's about a cubit length. So I think they say from the elbow to the finger. And he put it under his right thigh. So he's left-handed. He's restricted in his right hand somehow. And he's, got it, he's going to put it under his right thigh. And probably the king is not going to suspect anything because he's maybe crippled or in some way restricted in his right hand that he's not even going to think about that. But because he's left-handed, he's going to be able to reach to the right to pull this out. He says, or it goes on, verse 17, And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. You know, today in the West, uh, most of us are struggling with weight because we live in such abundance. We eat every day. Every day you get up and you can eat. You go to some nations, people don't have a weight problem because they get up some days and they just, there's nothing to eat or there's one meal a day. We have three meals a day and snacks in between and sugar everywhere. And so a lot of people in the West are overweight, but that would be unusual for most people in anciently, but not these people and not this man. This man was living high on the hog, so to speak. And that was at the expense of Israel. So Israel's doing all the work, all the labor, and giving all the tribute. And that's, that's what's making this man fat. He's just living high on the hog. So he's very fat, he's a glutton. This is a glutton with no self-control. These are immoral people. And this is their immoral king with no self-control. He was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. So this is uh, a hood. So they would come and present, and so he sends them away. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto you, O king. So the sense here is that um, there's some sort of religious sculptures and that as they're all leaving and a hood gets to the sculptures, maybe he's like he's inspired by the religiosity, the gods that are there. And so he's inspired at, the, at this point and he turns back and he says to King uh, Eglon, I have a secret errand unto you, O king, who said, 
keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. So he's a narcissist. And so the gods have a secret message for him. Oh, sure, let's, okay, if it's secret, let's go, okay, get clear everybody out. I can't wait to hear this secret message from me. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. Okay, so Israel is about rule of law. Gentiles are about the rule of man. Does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And everybody else has to be subject to his whims. That's the Moabites. So he living high on the, he's got a summer parlor for himself alone. So that's where Ehud comes in now. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto you. And so he arose out of his seat. It's like, this is really interesting. I can't wait to hear this. And Ehud, and, and, and by the way, again, you know, the, the question is, can God work through flawed human beings? As we study this man, Ehud, I hope it's becoming very clear to us that he's a deceiver. He's a deceptive man. But what he has that Israelites, that Israelites don't have is courage. And God cannot work without courage. So given a, a thousand people and one has courage, God can't work with the 999. He's going to work with the one that has a bit of courage. And so this man is a flawed human being. He's a left-handed man, so there's already something weird about him that stands out. He's, maybe he's a little bit of an outcast as well. But more importantly, he's a thinker with courage. And so he sits down and he strategizes how he's going to take down this mighty king while everyone else is just compliant. Everyone else is just going along with it. So he put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh. He sat down and he planned this out. He thought this through carefully every step of the way. Probably wasn't the first time that he had brought a gift to the king and saw how the layout of the palace and the parlor and how the, how the whole operation works. And he's just sick of it. Oh, everybody's sick of it. But he's sick of it and he's going to do something about it. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Like, this is serious. I'm, I'm sick of you. And I'm sick of what you're doing to Israel. And we're going to take care of this right now. So he thrust it into his belly. And it must have been some big belly, but he must, it must have been such force that he just, this, this is the end of this. And the haft or the handle also went in after the blade. And so that gives you the sense that there was no division between the handle and the blade. He designed this thing so that it was, it was inconspicuous. So you wouldn't notice it was under his leg, nothing sticking out. And, and when he thrust, he thrust it with such force that even the handle went into the belly. And the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. That's how deep it went in, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud, Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. Again, this is a strategist. This is somebody who can sit down and think and not just be afraid. Somebody with a bit of backbone. He's flawed. This is a flawed human being, left-hand man bad. He's flawed. 
but he has courage. And so God can work with courage. He can't work with cowardice. So he, God, and, and God has such a love for Israel that he's got to work within the human system. So within the human system, he sees who he can work with to save Israel. Who has a little bit of courage here? So he went through the porch, shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. All of this is strategized. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so he locks the, the doors. When he was gone out, his servants came, that's the king's servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, surely he covers his feet in his summer chamber. In other words, he must be sleeping, you know, he's big, he gets tired during the day, it's hot, he must be taking a nap. I'm not going to wake him up. Are you going to wake him up? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to go in there. I'm not going to wake him up. So they're sort of reassuring each other. I think, I think the right decision here is we leave him alone because there's no rule of law. There's just rule of man. You think of, you know, back in the day, Saddam Hussein, that type of leader, where they just do whatever they like to you. And so I'm not going to wake him up. So surely he covers his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried there. They tarried until they were ashamed. It's like, okay, well, like, what are we doing here? Like, this has been, how long has it been? And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, so a lot of time has passed. They're just sitting there. They're too afraid to go in. Finally, it's like, we've got to do, somebody, we've got to do something. So they finally go in, they open the doors, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead upon the earth. And Ehud, again, he's a thinker, he's a strategist, he's figured this out. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped under Sirath. So there they're tarrying, he's running. And it came to pass, when he was come, that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. So they probably had no idea what was going on. They hear the trumpet, they all come out. <clears throat> and he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they probably had no clue. But he's thinking this through, and he's going to put an end to this oppression once and for all. And God is actually working through the human system and working with this flawed individual. And they went down after him and took the forge or the, the, the passages, the passages or the bridges maybe, the, the passageways of Jordan toward Moab. So these are critical strategic points. And suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men. You know, all it takes for people to have courage is for one man to have courage. Courage is contagious. And so one man has courage and one man takes down the king and suddenly people, people realize, like, okay, we don't have to be oppressed here. We don't, let, let, let's do this. And so they follow him and they take down 10,000 Moabite soldiers. And then the, 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 the writer says here, they were all lusty and all men of valor. So they ate well. These are the king's men. They are very wealthy. They're in Mesopotamia. They've got all the wealth. All the, the slaves are bringing all the food to them. They're, they're very muscular, very, very well proportioned. And they're men of valor. And they're escaped, not a man. God, God heard the cries of Israel. And you know, yeah, left-hand man bad. 
But look at the suffering in Israel. So I, I think we'll support left-hand man bad. I think we'll support the left-hand man because the suffering is too much. And God is trying to act to put an end to the suffering. All of the children that are being raped and aborted and, and the women that are being oppressed and raped and, and, and abused and the young children that are being enslaved and all of the wealth that's being taken from Israel as they have to... Like, let's just stop this. Even if God has to use a flawed man, he's going to stop this. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest four score years. So now, you know, the first rest was for 40 years. Now, then, then they rebel and they're, they're, they're uh, subjugated for 18 years. But now they have rest for 80 years. This is a, quite an amazing feat. So God, this is God's mercy on them. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath. So this is the third judge now which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goat. So this is the purpose of the judge, to take down Israel's enemies so that Israel can be freed from oppression. That's the purpose of the judge. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. So, so this is the third, and there's not much said here. But clearly we know the story. When the one judge dies, the people return to their wickedness. Then God raises up the next judge and delivers them. And then when that judge dies, the people return to their wickedness. And so here, after Shamgar, we'll just finish uh, in, with Judges in verse 1 of chapter 4. And the children of Israel did evil again in whose sight? In their own sight? Did, 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 the, people, did the children of Israel realize that they were evil? Or did they do evil in the Lord's sight. So they, this goes on, it's been a bit of a while, it's, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's gradual, they just sort of slip into things, people have good ideas that are better than God's, and then they do evil in the sight of the Lord, when Ehud was dead. So it's just this pattern over and over and over again. And so that's Judges chapter 3. I just want to end with um, a couple of verses from the Psalms. Uh, we, we're just taking a break from the Psalms, but after we finish Judges, we'll go back to the Psalms. But it's all, it's all throughout the Bible. So here in Psalms, we read, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. You know, when we see gangs coming in and destroying lives and drugs destroying lives and, 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 and these, these socialists destroying lives and abortion destroying lives, does God not hear the suffering? And, and God is the father of the fatherless. And he, he has mercy on the needy. And he will work within human systems and raise up flawed human beings in order to respond to these cries. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, says the Lord. And you know, he puts his, pours his spirit upon the judges. I will set him in safety from him that puffs at him. So there goes Eglon into the ditch, even though God is using a flawed man, Ehud, to do it. I will set him in safety from him that puffs at him. <clears throat> the words of the Lord are pure words. His covenant is pure. As silver tried in a furnace, furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them 
from this generation forever. So God is constantly going to act to save Israel because he's in covenant with Israel. And as long as Israel is alive, there is hope that there's going to be a remnant that finally gets it. Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 30, that will finally repent wholeheartedly and take up the role that God has for Israel. We are first fruits. We're counting towards Pentecost. Here we are, day 18. We're coming up to the third week in the count. Here we are. So we are now focusing on what can we do to understand our role. Let's understand our role in counting towards this first fruits harvest. And understanding, it's not just understanding our role, but understanding our role with respect to the rest of Israel. Has God forgotten Israel? Has he thrown Israel away? And he's only working with the church? Or is the church Israel? But the first fruits, the first fruits harvest of Israel. So, so there's Israel. God has not forgotten her. God has chosen her. And in the process of finally getting to that harvest that he's looking for, he now uses this first fruits harvest as a tool. We're, we're, we're a tool to help him with the fall harvest. So we're in week three of this Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, day 18 of the 50 days. Here we are counting, and we need to understand what is our purpose here? Why are we Israelites? Why, why are we grafted into Israel? And has God forgotten his covenant? Well, I hope as we're studying these passages that we're beginning to see very, very clearly that God is very, very faithful to his word, that God is a faithful God, and this is the God that we serve. This is the Christ. This is why Christ came. The Bible tells one story from Genesis to Revelation. Let's be clear about it. What a mighty God we serve. What a faithful God we serve. Let's learn as we go through Judges and see the mistakes of ancient Israel. We as first fruits Israel, let's not repeat these mistakes. Let's not be good in our own sight and do what's right in our own sight. But God is looking down from heaven and saying, this is evil, this violates my word. Let's conform ourselves to the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord, amen.